God, good to be here tonight in his house. Amen. How many ready for Joshua? We're going to continue in chapter 8 and excited about what God is teaching us in chapter 8. And uh, the theme of the chapter is this, just turning defeat into victory. How many are glad tonight that our God is able? And when we fail, our God is able to take our failures and he turns them into victories. When we come to the Lord and we have a repentant heart and we're able to come to God and recognize that, that uh, what we have done and we give ourselves over to the Lord accepting Christ's sacrifice, man, God, he takes us back. How many know that he holds us by the hand? Man, we might stumble, but we will not fall. And God leads us on into new victories. So tonight we're going to continue with this chapter in the next few verses. And this part I'm just going to call committed to win. We must be committed to win with Jesus Christ. How many are ready to be committed to win with Jesus? Because he's committed to win with you. Our God is able. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 to 58 says this. For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Now, I don't know what's been going on in your life lately, or maybe even today, but I know that no matter what sin you're struggling with or whatever may be happening in your life there, that I know our God has a remedy for your sin. Our God has a remedy for the things that we struggle with. It's Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for our sin, and our God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can help us now live for Him from this, move, this time forward, and we can be strong and immovable in Jesus Christ. So tonight, as we continue in Joshua 8, we're going to look at this story of how the Lord used the Israelites in victory over the people of Ai, even though they had previously lost in battle against them due to their sin and disobedience among them in the camp. Even though they had made the mistake before, God now turns the tables and he allows them to have victory over their enemies. So my first point tonight that I want you to take away is this. God is a God of new victories. There's more to come in your life. There's new victories that God has already planned for you. What we learn from reading the story of Joshua is that God doesn't give up on us. How many can say thank you, Jesus, for that? Even though we mess up, God still works with those who repent and are willing to trust in him. And he gives us a new beginning. And after he gives us a new, be a new beginning, he gives us a new strategy for dealing with the enemy. And our God works with us to carry out these new victories. So I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 8, verse 14. I want to read these first few verses. And we're going to see how God emptied out Ai, the, the town of Ai. It says this in verse 14. When the king of Ai saw the Israelites across the valley, he and all his army hurried out early in the morning and attacked the Israelites at a place overlooking the Jordan Valley. In the Hebrew, it means Arabah. But he didn't realize there was an ambush behind the town. 
Joshua and the Israelite army fled toward the wilderness, and though they were badly beat, as though they were badly beaten. And then all the men in the town were called out to chase after them. And in this way, they were lured away from the town. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not chase after the Israelites. And the town was left wide open. I want you to picture this. This is a strategy of God. He's like, all right, you guys are going to act like you just, you're just beaten. You're just bruised. You guys are fleeing. You are afraid of the men of Ai because they already beat you in battle one time. You lost terribly, and you had to run for your lives. Now you're going to do the same thing, only this time this is part of the strategy because they are so confident. They are overconfident that they are going to chase you down, and they don't, they're not even going to leave a single man left in town. So God's plan to empty out this town was to have them run out into the hills, and these men run after them. The town is empty. Matthew Henry once said this, they are the most in danger who are least aware of it. There's a lesson here. See, Joshua and his men began to flee, and this gave the men of Ai even more assurance of victory. The enemy left their town undefended, but this was folly. What can we learn? Make sure that your confidence and hope is in the Lord and not in your own abilities or understanding. Allow that to just soak into your heart tonight for a second. Make sure your hope is in the Lord. That's what we can learn from this story. The men of Ai were confident in their abilities. They were confident, oh, we got them now. Man, we, we beat them once, we're going to beat them again. We're going to chase them down. But I learned that in this we, too, can be overconfident. We can be overconfident in our flesh. We can be overconfident in our knowledge, in our own wisdom, in our own ways. We think we know what the, the thing is to do. But the problem and the danger is, is that we end up doing it our way. We end up taking risks, and we end up being reckless like the men of Ai. So make sure your confidence and hope is in the Lord. So God emptied out Ai, and now we see that Ai is captured. Look at Joshua 8, verses 18 to 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, I love this part of the story, point the spear in your hand toward Ai. Point the spear. For I will hand the town over to you. Joshua did as he was commanded. And as soon as Joshua gave this signal, and all the men in ambush jumped up from their position and poured into the town. They quickly captured it and set it on fire. When the men of Ai looked behind them, smoke from the town was filling the sky. And they had nowhere to go. For the Israelites, who had fled in the direction of the wilderness, now turned on their pursuers. Can someone say, oh, snap. You don't say that, all right? This has got to be the feeling these guys had. Like, oh, no, what did we do? You turn around and the town's on fire. We got nowhere to go. There's nothing but wilderness to our backs, and the Israelites are now turning toward us. This is not a good situation. You see, this battle that we just read about is reminiscent of an earlier battle in Exodus chapter 17 when Joshua fought against Amalek. And Moses held up his staff to the Lord on a high hill. As long as his hands were up, the Israelites had the advantage. And when his hands got tired, who did he have? 
He had his, he had his closest leaders. He had Aaron and her, and they would come along and they would hold Moses' hands up so that staff stayed up in the air high on that hill. I can imagine the scene, you know, and it's, it's like a staff. The staff represents the power of God, the ability of God to do anything. How many know God is almighty, by the way? He is omnipotent, right? He has divine omnipotence. There is nothing God cannot do. And that staff raised was a sign that, look out, God is going to do something. And any enemy of God ought to fear and shudder because it's going to be incredible and devastating to the enemies of God. And this is what this battle now reminds us, because Joshua achieved a great victory against Amalek. So in this scene, God is telling Joshua, point your spear at the town. (laughs) See, God is about to do something incredible. I want you to remember that the next time that you're facing some enemy, all right? I want you to remember the next time you are, you are struggling in some sort of battle, you get out your spiritual spear, all right? And you just say to the Lord, Lord, do something incredible. God, I'm going to point at that enemy because I'm representing, this is representing God. You're about to do something miraculous. It's not in my knowledge. It's not in my power. It's in your power, Lord. The victory is yours. Amen? I love the visuals that the Old Testament gives to us because in the spiritual today, like we're not going out with spears, we're not burning down cities, but in the spiritual realm, we are doing warfare. And I love the visual of the Old Testament to help the Christian today. Let us use the visuals that God has given to us as powerful ways that we can connect with God and claim these victories. Is there anything God cannot do? No. His power is unlimited. What I learned from this story, this part, is I need to trust in the power of the Lord. Amen? Already tonight, God's teaching us. Trust and put all your confidence in the Lord and not in your own abilities. Now, trust in the power of the Lord. And so they piled let me, well, actually, I'm get ahead of myself here. All right, Ai's army and the people are now destroyed. Let's look at Joshua chapter 8, verses 21 to 29. It says, when Joshua and all the other Israelites saw that the ambush had succeeded and that smoke was rising from the town, they turned and attacked the men of Ai. Meanwhile, the Israelites who were inside the town came out and attacked the enemy from the rear. So the men, the men of Ai were caught in the middle with Israelite fighters on both sides, Israel attacked them, and not a single person survived or escaped. Only the king of Ai was taken alive and brought to Joshua. And when the Israelite army finished chasing and killing all the men of Ai in the open fields, they went back and finished off everyone inside. So the entire population of Ai, including men and women, was wiped out that day, 12,000 in all. For Joshua kept holding out his spear until everyone who had lived in Ai was completely destroyed. Only the livestock and the treasures of the town were not destroyed. For the Israelites kept these as plunder for themselves, as the Lord had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned the town of Ai, and it became a permanent mound of ruins, desolate to this very day. Ai, the name in Hebrew, actually means ruin. Joshua impaled the king of Ai on a sharpened pole 
and he left him there until evening. At sunset, the Israelites took down the body as Joshua commanded and threw it in front of the town gate, and they piled a great heap of stones over him that can still be seen today. Whew. That's a brutal scene right there. I'm picturing a movie right now, watching this scene. But listen, when we read that story, the modern-day person sometimes has a little bit difficulty wrapping our mind around this because we read how there was a, an annihilation of people in AI, including all the women and the kids. No one left. And sometimes we have a hard time understanding this. But again, we must learn this. This was not the slaughter of innocent people. But the judgment of God on, a, on an evil society that had long resisted God's grace and truth. This is something that we as New Testament people, when we look back at Old Testament times, we have to realize what God was doing in dealing with the peoples of this earth and these societies at that time prior to the Christ coming. You must listen. This society was not innocent. This society was an evil society who had resisted God's grace and God's truth, which brings to an important teaching point. What is an enemy? I want us to think about that for a second. What is an enemy? An enemy is one who lives in opposition to another, hating him and seeking to harm him. Be careful you understand what an enemy is and the definition of what an enemy is. Sometimes in modern day, in English language, we, we get our words, we aren't very precise in our definitions. You know, lots of words are that way in English where it, it could mean almost anything. But enemy, make sure you clearly define what that means. When you say someone's an enemy or something is an enemy, you want to know this. It's one who lives in opposition to another hating him and seeking to harm him. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why would anyone want to live in opposition to the one true, living, righteous, and holy God? Why would anyone want to live in opposition to the one true, living, holy, and righteous God? Well, there's a simple reason. Because of sin. Because of sin. Listen, the natural sinful state of human beings is in opposition to God. The natural sinful human state is in opposition to God. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. The Bible says this, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. I want us to all just take a minute tonight to think about this for a second. Paul made sure to include everybody in this. He's talking to the believers now. He's talking to those that have faith. He's saying, you once were far away from God. How many remember those days you were far away from God, right? Not, not good. 
When you look back on it, you realize, man, I was a mess. Man, I, I just about made a shipwreck of my life or I was headed in that direction. But Jesus came into my life. Paul is saying, you once were far away from God. And then he clearly defines what you were, your status. You were an enemy of God. What made you an enemy of God? It was your sin. It was your evil thoughts and your actions. You were missing the mark with God. You didn't care that there was a true living God. You cared about what you desired. You cared about your impulses, your appetites, your cravings, your wishes. That's what you cared about. And if there was a God, you just sort of ignored him or told him to go away. Or when his people came around and you thought they were preachy, you didn't like it. And you told them to go somewhere. Because you were an enemy of God. You didn't want God's ways. You wanted your ways. Your thoughts and your actions were evil. So you were an enemy, and you were separated from God by your sins. And what does the Bible say the penalty for sin is? The penalty for sin is death. Now listen, in the Old Testament, we just read Joshua 7. Pastor got to preach that glorious chapter. It was all about the judgment of God on sin. Achan and his family, what happened to them because of their sin? They were wiped out. They were pointed out and found out, and then they were wiped out. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide from God. You see, sin's penalty is death. But thanks be to God that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He paid the death penalty and restored our friendship with God. Thank you, Lord. See, this is the deal that is completely not balanced, right? This is God's deal. He says, I'm going to pay your penalty. I'm going to pay your fines. I'm going to pay that. I'm going to pay it. He lived a perfect life we did not live a perfect life. He did not deserve death. He did not deserve pain. He did not deserve punishment, but he took it on himself. And the deal is that we trust and place our faith in him alone. That's it. Do you believe in the Son of God? You trust in Christ alone? Then his death paid the penalty for your sin. Romans 5, 10 and 11 says this, For since our friendship with God oh, hallelujah, was restored by the death of His Son while we were still sinners. Actually, it says still His enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. I'm going to read that whole Verse, those verses again, because this is wonderful. Would you write it down? Would you, whatever, take a snapshot so you can dwell on this. Because this is the gospel. This is the best news that any human being could ever have in their life. It says in Romans 5, 10, and 11, For since our friendship with God was restored 
by the death of his son, while we were still his what? Enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Say thank you for the resurrection. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. I tell you, this is really good news. Do you know it's really good news for a lot of religious people that live around the world too? Because there's a lot of people that are stuck in dead religions. They're stuck trying to please a God who is far away, who they think is unknowable, untouchable, unreachable. A God full of rules and a God full of expectations that they should meet the expectations and and work so hard to try to please that God. Many of the world's religions are like that. And they can't know God. Christianity is so different. God offers us friendship. Once we were far away, now we are close. Once we were enemies, now we are friends with God. And it was only possible through Jesus Christ. Wow. And so when we think of the town of Ai and we think of the destruction in the Old Testament and we think of the wiping out and annihilation of these people, I want you to know God did these things in ancient times to show the penalty for death. But I thank God we live on the other side of Calvary, that Jesus Christ has come, and God now outpours his amazing grace. I'll tell you what, though, the penalty for sin is still death if we do not accept his son and his sacrifice. That's why we preach That's why we have church. That's why we built churches. That's why we send missionaries. Because without accepting Jesus as the Son of God, the only way to God, the death penalty for sin or the penalty for sin is still death, eternal separation from God. So in the story, we move along to verses 23 and and 29. We can look back at those and see that the king of Ai was slain. But before he was slain, he was taken alive to Joshua. And then he was impaled on a sharpened pole, and his dead body was thrown in front of the town gate and hurt, and, and uh, a great heap of stones was piled on it. This reminds me about the fate of our enemy, Satan, the devil. I think this king was representative, the king of wickedness here, Ai, the king of Ai. He was the king of sin here. He was the king of of turning his back on God, not wanting God. And Satan, too, will one day be defeated. You see, Romans 16.20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. How many have been? How many have been attacked by the devil? Man, he's he's chasing you. He's attacking you. Their spiritual warfare. Well, I want you to declare with this me with declare this with me tonight, as we have read this verse. Let's say this together. Satan is crushed. Can you say that with me? Ready? One, two, three. Satan is crushed. You online, join us. Ready? One, two, three. Satan is crushed. 
Ooh, I like the sound of that. He is crushed. Now let me read you another verse from Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We already know how it ends. Man, when we read the end of the book, I mean, we read Revelation, what do we have to be afraid of? We already know that our great enemy, this king of the liars, right, the father of lies, he is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and he is going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. So would you declare this with me? Are you ready? On the count of three, we're going to say Satan is defeated. Ready? One, two, three. Satan is defeated. All right. Just for good measure. One, two, three. Satan is defeated. Whew. Declare that. Believe that. Know that. All right. And then we see that AI's spoils are claimed. Verse 27, only the livestock and the treasures of the town were not destroyed. For the Israelites kept these as plunder for themselves as the Lord had commanded Joshua. Hmm. When I think of this, I think, what have we been given as a result of Jesus' victory on the cross? Man, he won the battle already. What spoils, what rewards have we been given as a result of his victory? You see, Jesus died to bring us near to God and to reveal his character. What did he do on the cross? Well, he revealed himself as a God of infinite love. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. God loved the world. So we see what God has done. He brought us near to God and he showed us that he was a God of infinite love. Salvation and love are gifts from God. Ephesians 2, 4-7 says it like this. But God is so rich in mercy. When you think of being rich, let me stop here for a second. When you think of being rich, you know, we think of money. You think of wealth on earth, you know. If we, if we were really rich, you know, we think of like, you know, a big pile of cash. You know, maybe some coins. You know, and we just pick up the coins, let them fall through our fingers, you know, that kind of stuff. And we're just you know, fl flipping through the bills, you know what I mean, throwing it in the air. Maybe we get in one of those little machines that blows it all around us, and we just, you know, just dancing around. We think of rich. We're just rolling in the dough, you know, that kind of thing. We think of those things. Now I want you to visualize this. God is rich in mercy. Whew, man. His mercy is all around. It's in great heaps and great piles. Our God has unlimited mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So, amen. So God can point to us in all future ages. What? 
Think about this. So God can point to us in all future ages. Luis, God can point to you. Jerry, God can point to you. Bob, God can point to you. And you, and you, and you, and every one of us. So that God can point to us in all future ages as examples. What? God is using us for sermon illustrations. We are his examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Wow. You know, I don't know if there's anything greater maybe than a father who likes to give sermon illustrations or just tell stories about their kids because they're proud of them or what they've done or who they are as a person. But our Heavenly Father, man, He will point to us in all future generations as an example of His great wealth of grace. Look what you have achieved because of Jesus. Look who you have become because of Jesus. Look where you have been seated because of Jesus. Oh, man. Why would you let anybody tell you you are less than? Look what he has done for you. You know, maybe in this life, I'm, I'm nothing in myself. I'm nothing. Yes, I would be a mess. But because of Jesus Christ, whoosh, I'm valuable. I've been seated. <laughs> I've been seated in heavenly places. I am rich beyond measure because of the grace that has been deposited in my life. God is a God of new victories. He has a new victory for you. Doesn't matter what you've done, don't dwell on the past. He's already strategized and he's already planned that, turn that defeat into a victory. You want to claim that. Tonight in my last point here is that God is a God of new commitments. How many are glad that God gives us a chance to make things right? There's nothing like that feeling that we get when the Lord forgives us and we just, you know, maybe we cried it out. We just said, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. And it's such a good feeling, but then what do we do after that? Well, it's time to make a new commitment. It's time to rededicate ourselves. It's time to press in. It's time to say, okay, Lord, from, we're going we're gonna to move forward. For the Israelites... What did that new commitment look like, and what can we learn from it? Well, we see that Joshua built an altar. In Joshua 8, verse 30 to 31, it says, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal. He followed the commands that Moses, the Lord's servant, had written in the book of instruction. Make me an altar from stones that are uncut and have not been shaped with iron tools. In other words, man, you have nothing to do with your salvation. It's only from God. Then on the altar... They presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. These offerings were Israel's way of showing us that as a nation, they were committed to the Lord's ways and, the, and to fellowship with God from this point forward. And you know what? We do the same. When we commit ourselves and our families to worship Him regularly, when we make a new commitment, we say, Lord, I want to obey your book. I'm going to put you first every day in all things including our finances. 
Lord, this is what we're going to do. Building an altar takes thought. It takes work. It doesn't build itself. There's sweat and labor involved. It must be built intentionally. You have to commit yourself intentionally to the Lord. And if you do, you will reap the rewards and the blessings of God. An altar is a physical object that serves also as a reminder that there is a God to be worshipped. And in a way, our church building is like an altar. It gives us a place to gather and to offer sacrifices. We give our praise. We give our talents. We give our finances as an offering. We do that all here in this place. We may not have physical altars at our homes, but we, at our homes, they should also be places of worship to God. Just like this is the house of God where we gather together, your home is an altar to the Lord, a place of worship. Joshua wrote the law on stones. Joshua 8, 32 to 33 says this, And as the Israelites watched, Joshua copied onto the stones of the altar the instructions Moses had given them. Then all the Israelites, foreigners and native-born alike, along with the elders and the officers and judges, were divided into two groups. This is cool. Listen. One group stood in front of Mount Gerizim, the other in front of Mount Ebal. Each group faced the other, and between them stood the Levitical priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. This was all done according to the commands that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had previously given for blessing the people of Israel. So Joshua wrote on these stones directly in obedience to the instructions that Moses gave in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 1 to 8. In the Near East of that day, it was customary for kings to celebrate their greatness by writing records of their military exploits on huge stones covered with plaster. But the secret of Israel's victory was not their leader or their army. It was their obedience to God's law. Today, we must have the words of God written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. When written on stone, they are only instructional, not transformational. But through the Spirit, we can live in obedience to the Word. The Word of God must be written on our hearts. It must transform us. You see, Romans 8, 3-4 says this, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful natures, but instead follow the Spirit. The Spirit has written God's law in our hearts. By the way, this is the fourth public monument of stones that has been erected by Joshua. The first was at Gilgal, commemorating Israel's passage across the Jordan. The second was in the Valley of Achor, a monument to Achor. Achan's sin and God's judgment. The third was at the entrance to Ai, a reminder of God's faithfulness to help his people. These stones on Mount Ebal reminded Israel that their success lay only in their obedience to God's law. In conclusion tonight, Joshua read the law. Joshua 8, 34 and 35 says this, Joshua then read to them all the blessings and curses Moses had written in the book of instruction. Every word of every command that Moses had ever given was read to the entire assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. I wonder how long that sermon was. 
The tribes were assigned their places in front of the two mounts, according to Moses' instructions in Deuteronomy. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali were at Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. That's what Ebal means. And Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Joseph, or Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin were at Mount Gerizim, in Hebrew meaning the Mount of Blessing. So you got two mounts, the Mount of Cursing, the Mount of Blessing. The tribes at Mount Gerizim were founded by men who had either Leah or Rachel for their mother, while the tribes at Mount Ebal were descended from either Zilpah or Bilhah, handmaids of Leah and Rachel. The only exceptions were Reuben and Zebulun, who belonged to Leah. Reuben had forfeited his status as the firstborn because he had sinned against his father. But in this valley, between the two mountains, stood the priests and the Levites with the ark, surrounded by the elders, officers and judges of this nation. And then the people were all facing the ark, which represented the presence of the Lord among his people. When Joshua and the Levites read the blessings of the Lord one by one from Deuteronomy 28, the tribes of Mount Gerizim responded with a loud, united, Amen! Which in the Hebrew means, what? So be it. And when they read the curses from Deuteronomy chapter 27 the tribes at Mount Ebal would respond with their amen after each curse was read. Each blessing, each curse. Amen. Amen. The people listened. You see, Joshua would have read these words of Moses, and I'm going to read them to you tonight. Imagine that scene. Joshua read these words in Deuteronomy 11, 26 to 29. He said, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today, the curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods, which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. I want you to know, church, that when we make a new commitment to the Lord, let us make sure that our commitment is centered on our hearing and obeying His book of instruction, the Holy Bible, and by trusting only in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. Amen? Amen.